Welcome to Before the Ballot, a podcast series designed to educate voters before they cast their ballots this November. I'm your host, Elizabeth Donahue, and joining me today to discuss political institutions in the United States is Sarah Stazak. Sarah received her PhD in politics from Brandeis University and is an associate research scholar in the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs. Her research and teaching interests are at the intersection of public law, policy, and American political development. She is the author of No Day in Court, Access to Justice, and the Politics of Judicial Retrenchment. She also has a forthcoming book, Privatizing Justice, Arbitration and Litigation Reform in the U.S. Sarah was previously a Robert Wood Johnson Scholar in Health Policy Research at Harvard University. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So the purpose of this podcast is to inform voters about the current policy proposals and ongoing political updates before they cast their ballot this coming November. But I think it would be very helpful for today's show to discuss a general overview of our political institutions, how they've changed over time, and then we can go to the current situation in 2020. So let's start with policymaking on a general level. Could you just give us a little debrief of the roles that each of the three branches of government play in a bill becoming a law or in regulation being made? Absolutely. So part of the reason, you know, that we have three branches of government to begin with and that, you know, the nation's founders designed it that way was actually precisely so that this process would be complicated in hopes of making sure that legislative um, outcomes um, were ones that were actually good for the polity um, at large and more broadly. So just the the very quick version is that, um, you know, bills, would-be bills are introduced um, into Congress. Um, both houses of Congress um, at this point have various committees that often first take up the task of reviewing um, what a particular policy proposal looks like before making um, recommendations to the body as a whole. Um, in total, bills have to pass both houses um, of our legislature, the House of Representatives and the Senate, um, before proceeding to the executive branch. And the executive branch exists, um, of course, to, to basically sign off on a law and then to leverage its apparatus, its bureaucracy, its administrative agencies to actually implement it. So a president can sign a bill, he can decline to, um, he can veto a bill. But once a bill does become a law, it really becomes the province rather um, of the executive branch, which itself has gotten larger and larger over time in order to exist as an apparatus for implementing the types of laws that we have today. Finally, we have the judiciary, um, which I think in a lot of ways is kind of seen as the most powerful check that we have um, on laws and on politics, really, um, in the United States. And they exist so as to be able to review laws um, to make sure that they're legal or that they um, abide by the Constitution in any number of ways. Uh, So anyone who's gone through law school knows that you spend a huge amount of time on Marbury versus Madison, <laughs> which, gave, which exactly gave that right, right? <laughs> so I want to pick up on your point about the executive branch, because I think this is something that people who aren't seeped in the law or, you know, haven't gone to law school or what not um, always surprises them. So what you just said is that Congress is the body that makes the laws, but we've certainly seen the president and administrations create regulation that seems to be making law. Um, and certainly I would 
I think we would agree that President Trump has really used the executive power to enact rules, perhaps more than other presidents have. So I wonder if you could unpack that a little bit for us and explain how it is that the executive branch, which is not the lawmaking uh, body, has been able to do so in seemingly increasing ways. Yes, absolutely. So you know, in many ways, especially in the you know Trump administration era, it's easiest, I think, when we talk about expansions in executive power, you know, to look first to executive orders, how much they've proliferated, you know, the content of them, the controversy around them. Um, but the fact really is that in many ways, presidents um, can exercise at times almost unilateral power through their administrative agencies. So a lot happens in the process of actually translating um, you know, a law into a regulation or a rule, which are really just the set of instructions that particular individuals or groups or whoever, you know, is subject to a law receives so that they can, in fact, be in compliance with that law. Um, some of the processes are formal. And so there's, you know, a bit of oversight involved in translating those laws into regulations. But presidents, again, through their agencies, actually retain quite of a bit of authority to do things like issue, you know, policy guidance, um, memos to regulated agencies, make sort of informal determinations about what they and their administration will consider a violation of a particular law or not. Um, and so there is this way in which much legislating, if I can put it that way, actually does occur, occur outside of Congress in the United States these days. This is something that Trump has gotten a lot of attention for, um, but really it actually is a process that predated him at least somewhat. So of course, and it seems like it's then it's up to the courts really to decide if the executive branch has gone beyond rulemaking and dovetailed into the world of lawmaking. Uh, the most recent example is really the DACA case. I don't know if you want to touch on that at all and, and how that was really um, at the end of the day, a conflict between the legislative branch and the executive branch. Yeah. So on that point, um, more generally, I think it's important to note that while, you know, the judicial branch absolutely serves as a check, um, you know, on precisely this question, has the, you know, executive overstepped its constitutional authority? Are they running into grounds um, or sort of into the terrain of legislating instead of implementing policy? Um, by and large, we have a pretty strong um, standard of judicial deference to the activities of the administrative agencies. That's something that's really been, you know, established pretty clearly since the 1970s. And so the bar is actually pretty high for a court to say, you know what, this particular active executive authority in this realm um, is in fact not constitutional. Now, I think it's probably unsurprising that, you know, in cases like DACA, we're actually seeing situations where the court is in fact having to kind of weigh in and say, you know what, here is a rare example where we're actually not able to kind of accept, you know, your particular explanation for something. Um, but in terms of serving as a check, I mean, it's really, it, it's not so frequently that, you know, the courts get involved in this business. So it's tricky. It's, I think, becoming more frequent now, and I suspect will continue to. Um, but that in and of itself is a little bit unprecedented. So do you think this is because the court is really trying to stay out of the political realm, whereas as the executive branch and the legislative branch are squarely in the political realm? 
I think that's a really interesting question because, you know, I think in different contexts, you'll hear both arguments. On on the one hand, I think the general narrative of, you know, the Roberts Court, the Rehnquist Court um, that predated it, um, all the attention that we paid to, you know, the composition of the federal courts changing as we add conservatives to it, more conservative judges, um, all of that narrative really stretches the degree to which um, conservative, ideologically conservative judges are, are, in fact, sort of willing in many cases to, um, you know, allow their political or policy preferences, apparently at least, to influence their decision making. But on the other hand, in this context, like the DACA case, and in terms of the conversation that we're having, you know, here, I do think the Roberts Court is in a tricky position where. There are a lot of reasons, you know, why there have been questions more broadly about the political legitimacy um, of the Supreme Court, just given, you know, the recent, the fairly recent appointments to the court um, and the controversy around it. And so I do think that the Chief Justice in particular seems aware, and his recent decisions seem to be reflective of this, um, that it could be good for the institution as a whole, for its legitimacy, to try to stay out of making overt political determinations like this or policy determinations. Well, and it seems like part of that is the court's need or desire to have consistency and um, deference to the Constitution. And, you know, I, if you if you could just talk a little bit about the concept of stare decisis and sort of how that might keep the court more consistent than the other two political bodies. Absolutely. So it's very clear, you know, that the founders looked as the judiciary to the judiciary rather to be, I think, in some ways, the most small c conservative institution of the three of our government. Um, And what I mean by that is that, you know, because the courts are sort of charged with making sure um, that laws and policies don't run afoul of the Constitution, they are in effect positioned to be almost almost sort of a drag on the forward progress of democracy. They're the ones that are making sure that we are remaining, you know, that we are remaining true to what our institutional, you know, roots and designs um, actually are. So in terms of consistency, you know, courts, judges in general, whether they're ideologically conservative or liberal, um, we'll talk about things like precedent. We'll talk about things like stare decisis, um, both of which are just doctrines or even um, even ideals that judges aspire to, wherein they try to achieve consistency by sticking with cases that have been decided earlier. Um, so if a court, you know, here's an issue that is very, you know, similar to a particular early line of cases, Unless they really think that something has changed, either in the nature of that case or policy area or law, um, or if their you know predecessors applied a flawed reasoning, um, they really are, are sort of meant to stick with the original decision making. And so if judges are taking that seriously, um, there is every reason to expect that as an institution, they are going to be in certain ways the slowest moving and kind of the least volatile um, of the three. So pivoting a little bit to the current president. Mm -hmm. um, So 
we keep hearing in the news, the reporting, you know, often says, you know, that President Trump has defied conventional political norms. But I'm wondering how much of his changing of conventional political norms has actually had an effect on our institutions. And so I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that, whether you think um, some of the things he's done have actually had permanent change of our institutions, how much are the institutions really have remained the same. And we can talk a little bit about going forward in either a Trump, you know, second term or a Biden first term, you know, how much those institutions, those institutions look like going forward. So I think it is, you know, it's difficult and it's going to be a task of, you know, historians for sure. And of course, we're going to, we're getting into the business of it already to sort of pick apart exactly this question, which is how much of this, you know, time period is essentially just being colored by President Trump's behavior as an individual and as well as some of the other, you know, individuals that he works with pretty closely um, in government and his own advisors, and how much of that is actually changing institutions on the ground in a permanent way. Um, You know, I do think, you know, and I probably don't even need to speak too much length to sort of, you know, the conventions that seem to be things maybe specific to him, you know, Twitter in many ways being his primary form of communication, um, to some degree, a lack of kind of a traditional policy platform really expressed and shared with the public as such. Those are things that I'm not sure, you know, you know, for all of us, it may be that, you know, Twitter remains a great way to reach the voting public. Um, You know, some of those things might stay, but I don't think they're necessarily, you know, kind of what we're getting at here changes in real, um, you know, actual institutions on the ground. Um, I do think, though, that there are ways in which the presidency um, is continuing to expand in terms of his powers that are going to outlast him. So, you know, when you look at President Trump and the ways in which he has governed through executive orders, the ways in which he has governed by changing, you know, policy guidance within his agencies. He's both building upon a trend that was already unfolding and just opening new doors um, for future presidents to do the same. And the tough thing moving forward, the reason that I think something like that will ultimately be permanent or just be particularly difficult to dislodge is that theoretically, any future president would benefit from that, you know, regardless of which political party, you know, they are from. Now, if we have another President Trump term or another President Biden term, um, you know, in either case, I think the constituency of either president um, potentially stands to benefit from that. You know, if we end up with, you know, a President Biden and, and yet still Republican control in one or even both houses of Congress, um, we might just be kind of flipping, you know, the party who's in favor of extensive presidential power, but it's hard because it can benefit everyone. And I think that's going to make it difficult to roll back. So you touched on, I think, an important point, which is the role of Congress. So how much of this expansion um, at the executive branch has come about because Congress is is so hyper-partisan now. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, there's been documentation that really sort of from Newt Gingrich on, the partisanship has really increased. I-, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about Congress's role in creating this very powerful executive branch and whether in some ways they've just simply ceded their authority um, because of the partisanship. Yeah, absolutely. So as you said, you know, 
political and partisan polarization has really characterized, you know, our, our modern politics, you know, starting again from, from Newt Gingrich, but just really escalating almost every term of Congress to present. And because of that, um, you know, the way or sort of what we what we imagine Congress's purpose is has to some degree almost itself changed. It used to be and really not all that long ago, um, you know, when we think about it, 1994 feels like a long time ago and pre-1994 even further, but it's not that long ago. Um, it used to be the case that you would actually see a good bit of cooperation at times across um, party lines really just born of a shared ethos that, you know, even if, you know, I'm on one side of a political issue and and you're on another, that we're both, you know, citizens of this polity that have an equal stake in these politics um, and a shared commonality that we were really working toward, um, you know, similar goals. And as that has become less and less and less the case, as you also mentioned, there's just more and more literature documenting um, legislative gridlock, which is really just the inability or perhaps unwillingness at times for Congress to do much of anything. So does that kind of constitute them, you know, ceding their policy to the president? I think that um, that's going to depend a little bit on on the time frame and in the context. So Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, I think, at least understands that his inaction allows for a president, you know, who is in the same party as him to act. And so the costs of inaction, you know, might look a little different than if it ends up being Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and and President Biden. Maybe you would start to see, you know, at least more efforts on Congress's part to sort of rebuff the president. Um, But the other aspect of this, too, is that, you know, even where Congress has tried historically to constrain the president's power, that hasn't really been an overwhelming success story. So to this end, I'm thinking about, you know, over time, some efforts that Congress has made to constrain the ability of the president to act unilaterally when it comes to military conflict. Um, You know, the the Congress rather, you know, passed a law in the early 1970s, um, another in the early 2000s, both of which were geared toward, you know, requiring some accountability on the part of the president to Congress so that they, you know, the president couldn't just initiate and sustain military conflicts, you know, without the other branches of government being involved. But functionally and in practice, those rules and those laws haven't really gone very far. They haven't really constrained the president. So I wonder how much, if you can touch on a little bit, um, how much term limits affect all this. So the Congress does not have term limits, but the president does. Right. And we may find ourselves, you know, in the position of seeing exactly what this looks like um, if we do have another term for President Trump. So it's true that, um, you know, term limits, I think, do really do really shape this and and cause there to be a difference here. A second term president, particularly if they have, you know, any any ease with which they can work with Congress, is typically going to push, you know, as much of their policy um, agenda through as they possibly can. And in the context of, you know, President Trump, I could imagine also push the amount of legislating that he's able to do without Congress um, as far as he possibly can. So if our founding fathers looked in on us now, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, 
What do you think their impression would be in terms of the balance of power and how they set up our institutional system, which is unique in the world, I think, right? right? What would they say we have right? And what would they be concerned about as um, having deviated from their original vision of the of the country? I think starting, you know, starting with, with how it's deviated and kind of coming back to you know, what we potentially have right. One of the things that is sort of most surprising to me when you think back to what the founders themselves were concerned about um, is exactly, you know, not to stay on the same point, but these expansions and executive power that have occurred. And the reason I say that is because virtually everyone, you know, in the founding era, you know, they disagreed about many things. But one thing that they were very concerned about was that government be designed in such a way that we absolutely couldn't have have anything that started to look like a tyrannical single person or even single group of individuals who are amassing too much power. Um, it was taken as almost a given that everybody shared that goal. Um, and so given how uncontroversial that one particular thing was, I think it's really surprising, historically speaking, that we're finding ourselves you know, where we are now. I'm not sure it's fair to say, oh, it's their mistake or, you know, that it really is the product of any one issue, but it's just surprising. And sort of conversely, you know, we were talking about how Congress either really can't or hasn't been acting as much as possible. I mean, that too is sort of ironic given what the founders were worried about. They devoted, you know, most of their language in the Constitution to Congress. They were very concerned that it be representative of the people um, because that's where they really thought most of the controversial activity was going to happen. So we are in this kind of topsy-turvy, you know, state right now vis-a-vis what the founders' concerns looked like. So to wrap this up, and this has been such an interesting conversation, um, if I'm somebody who cares a lot about American institutions and, Mm -hmm. you know, ensuring that they remain steadfast and not crumble. Uh, When I go into the voting booth, what should I be most concerned about? So I think that's a great question. And I think there are, you know, kind of a lot of, a lot of ways to answer that. One of which um, kind of introduces something we haven't touched on quite yet. And that is in many ways, always kind of less glamorous, but I think more important than ever. And that is to pay an incredible amount of attention to your state and local elections um, in this particular election cycle. And I'll circle back to the national level in a moment. Um, But the reason I say that is that You know, given the COVID pandemic, but not only the COVID pandemic, we have moved into an era where it seems like governors, for example, not just the president, but governors and their role as kind of, you know, the head of head executive of the state, um, they're exercising a tremendous amount of discretion and power these days. We talk about executive orders. Um, You know, how many executive orders have we seen come from governors, you know, largely having to deal with COVID? Um, You know, we should all, to some degree, if you have kids, you should be very interested in who your your board of education members are. You should have before, probably too. We all should have. I'm saying this to myself. Um, But those are literally the individuals who have decided whether, you know, our kids are in school right at this moment or not. So I do think that, you know, know, in this particular climate that we're in, our state and local elections are hugely important. I think you could say that, though, even without, um, you know, COVID having put us in this particular situation. Um, And the reason I say that is because, you know, as 
national level politics um, has suffered, again, from things like polarization and gridlock on the one hand, um, and potentially excessive executive authority on the other, in many ways, we're turning more and more to our individual states um, to look for the types of rights protections and benefits that perhaps we're not, you know, so assured we're going to get from the federal government these days. And so I think um, some attention at that level is really important. Do you think, or I hope at least, that one thing that has become clear um, to more people, um, to the voting public, to anyone, you know, who can vote, um, is again, this less glamorous, but admittedly very important issue of administrative agencies of things that the executive branch can do, if not the president himself, precisely because the executive branch is an arm of the president. We know that we've, we've known that this kind of in a textbook way, how it's defined, um, but in an area where separation of, in an era rather, where separation of powers isn't working particularly well, it seems to check the individual branches of government. I think it's crucially important to understand that you are not just electing a president, you're electing an entire cohort of individuals under him who govern virtually every aspect of your life. And those aren't members of Congress. Those are, those are people that are often in many cases chosen by the president. Okay. So someone who cares about this has a lot to think about when they vote. This has been such an interesting conversation. Thank you, Sarah. Oh, thank you so much again for having me. Go to vote.gov to register to vote in this year's election. You've been listening to Before the Ballot. This show is produced by me, Henry Barrett, with the assistance of Rose Huber. This podcast is intended to be informational only. It does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs.